coming to you from the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with a professor here. He's also a writer, Alain Mabanku. He's the author of several books that are, well, many books, over, over 10 novels, right? Or 10, 10 yes. novels total, but they're coming into English. In the past few years, they've been entering the English language. Mm-hmm. We've got books like African Psycho, Broken Glass, Memoirs of a Porcupine, uh, Black Bazaar, and now we have a translation, a fresh translation of a book from 2007, when it's very specifically, it's time-specific. It's called Letter to Jimmy. It is a letter to James Baldwin on the 20th anniversary of his death, which was the year 2007, and now it's just freshly in English in 2014 from Soft Skull Press. I'll ask you the simplest and most complicated question first. Who was James Baldwin? <laughs> Who was James Baldwin? We can say that he was one of the most powerful American writer. Mm. I don't want to say that he was an African-American writer. He was just an American writer Mm. because he brought a lot of American issues on the table. He dealt, uh, for instance, with uh, the question of identity, the question of race, the question of sexuality, and plus he went abroad, he lived in France, that allowed him to maybe understand better the United States of America. Mm. Finally, I can say that uh, James Baldwin was a kind of uh, uh, theorician of the civil rights. Mm. He, with his book entitled The Fire Next Time, was a kind of prophet. He said in the 60s the fact that were, which are occurring now in the United States of America. How did, how did he know? How did he know that Ferguson would happen and these sorts of things would happen? I think that uh, maybe it's because the United States of America is, are still dealing with the question of racism. Mm. And um, as the communications are developing, we are not aware of the kind of racism nowadays. It's more intellectual. It's more hidden. It's not like clear uh, than it was in the 60s when people would hang or, or kill people here and there without having any trial. So he knew, Baldwin knew, that racism would turn, would go to a higher level, a harder to detect level. Mm-hmm. That's that's what that's what he figured out. Yes, he figured out that uh, the racism gonna increase. That's why he preferred at that time to explain what is the human being. He wanted just to explain the freedom of a human being by freeing. A human being, you're going to free the community. Mm-hmm. And then James Baldwin like, uh, understood quickly that uh, the problem in the U- United States of America wasn't the problem of the color. Mm-hmm. It was the problem of the classes. Mm-hmm. In what uh, class are you? Are you in the middle class, the higher class, or are you poor? Mm-hmm. Or are you a gay, are you a lesbian, and so on and so on. 
and uh, we need maybe to read again what he said, what he wrote at that time in order to understand the problem like in Ferguson, Trevor Martin, and so on and so on. So for Baldwin, the concept of the black race, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. is not important compared to the black individual, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to other other types of groupings, he wasn't... So, his important concerns were not with some idea of a black race, mm-hmm. right? Yes, his, his idea was not uh, only on the blackness because he was surrounded by a lot of white people. Marlon Brando was a friend, a friend of his, but I can quote also Jean-Paul Sartre in France, Simone de Beauvoir. He would like uh, meet a lot of American, expatriated American, like uh, uh, I can take like uh, Miles Davis, Richard White, uh, and um, maybe the fact that uh, he was like dealing with the idea that being a human being is to go and see the other people. He didn't care if you uh, were like white or black. He understood that the first step to reach in order to free the human being is to explain the freedom of our feelings. If you want to be a black, you can be a black even if you are white. And after all, if you remember the civil rights, we uh, had white people in it. GFK was in it, but you have uh, a lot of other people who, who came and helped uh, black people in the United States of America. It reminds me of in your book, in Letter to Jimmy, you have a section, two sections de- at the very beginning and end dealing with a homeless man you yes. encounter <laughs> in Santa Monica where you live. And he says... He's white, yet he feels like he's black, and he's waiting for his true skin color. And what did that, what did that make you think, those, those lines from this homeless man? I think that I wanted to demonstrate in both chapters that uh, being black is not a physical reality. It's just the way you can think. It's just the way you can live. If you are like close to black people, you're going to act like black people, you're going to feel their pain, you're going to feel their history, and you're going to write that history. You cannot write the black history without putting a white people, a white history in front of you. We say black people just because we are thinking about white people in the other side. So we need to like stop like opposing black and white because we have we are avoiding the main problem which is to try to uh, give another definition of the human being hmm. what was your first encounter with james baldwin in text the first encounter was uh, when uh was living in uh, in France, first of all, I read James Baldwin in France. And when I moved in the United States of America, then I began to read James Baldwin in English in order to 
learn at that time uh, a few words in English in order to try to master a little bit my English. So I can say that thanks to James Baldwin, I'm trying to express myself in English like he did when he would live in France. He would speak in France at 8 p.m. at 8 p.m. on TV. He's like explaining what is happening in the United States of America. So that was my first encounter. So I can like uh, fix it in in the 80s and 90s. And then I'm still reading him in English. I'm still reading and reading again uh, those books. And I found out that uh, he became my mentor. Mm. He's like trying to show me the path, what road to follow in order to uh, avoid the mistakes in my life. What did you read James Baldwin say that you had never read anybody else say before? You know, what was what new thing did James Baldwin tell you? I think that when it was in the fire next time, the first chapter, it's a letter written to his nephew. And um, he said to his nephew that um, don't accept people who call you a Negro. Mm. You have to define your own identity. Mm. So James Baldwin explained to me how to define my own identity. People can call me a black man or this or what, as long as I haven't defined my own identity, I won't accept this kind of explanation. So he gave me the proud of defining myself, of trying to find the perfect word, mm. the perfect word and the perfect world in which I'm going to live. Mm. And did you have more, did you feel more of a connection with Baldwin because he lived in France, a country you have lived in, or because he simply left his homeland? I think that uh, it's a part of my... Uh, my idea, he lived, he moved from the United States to France, in Saint-Paul-de-Vence, in the south of France. He lived over there as an expatriate. And as for me, I left the Congo, I went to France. And from France, I came to the United States. I'm not a kind of expatriate or something like that. Mm. But I feel that it was like I missed to meet him in France because he died in the in the in the eighties. Um, I missed to to meet him in France. And then it it was like we are like uh, avoiding each other. Mm. He went to France, I went to United States of America. Mm. He was more like uh, he was considered like an American in France, mm, yeah. but I don't know who I am in the United States of America. Mm. I'm not an African American. Mm. I'm an African mm. who has a French passport, who has a Congolese passport, and who, are, who is teaching in the United States of America. Mm. So I don't know if I'm, I will have. A, I'm gonna have. A, 
American passport, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't find something bad to have like three passports because nowadays you can live in three countries, you can like uh, gather three cultures. So um, I found a lot of similarities between his way and the way I've taken to come to come in the United States of America. What was you, you write in the French language originally? What was your first encounter with the French language? Oh, the French language is present in the Congo because we were colonized by France. So everybody speaks in, uh, French. And um, even in the administration, we speak French. Uh, at school, we speak French and so on and so on. French is like uh, an African language in Africa because uh, we didn't even think that French is... Uh, language coming from France. For us, we found that language in the street. You go in the market, people are speaking French, even if it's uh, a broken French, but it's still uh, a French language. So it's, I can say that it's, it's like my mother tongue, because I understood French uh, when I was like uh, three or four, and I began to practice French at the age of six. And at that point, you were already speaking, what, seven or eight African languages as well? Yes. In the Congo, we have like, we have uh, 43 languages. So uh, you speak so far seven of them, and uh, I'm trying to learn the other one, but it's going to take time because I need to learn uh, Polish in order to speak. Uh, uh, when I'll go to Poland, I need to learn Italian because I'm translated in Italian. I need to learn Korean because I'm translated. You know, as a writer, we are... Are you really in Korean? Yes. Because I study Korean. Oh, so I'm going to read your books in Korean now. Yes. I'm going to give you a book in Korean. Yes, yeah. I, would, I, would, I would like that. More reading material is better. But it's tell me, what is it like to read your work, your own work in English, now that it's available in English? It's uh, very strange because I read it like uh, uh, I didn't uh, write it. It's another work. The translator called uh, Sarah Ansari, she was my student when I was uh, at the University of Michigan. She was one of my best students. That's why (laughs) I kept in my mind that uh, one day if I have to translate, a non-fiction, I'm going to give it to one of my best students, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, she did a good job. So I think that um, it's another work. I have to respect what she did by translating me from French into English, mm-hmm. even though the ideas are the same, are alike, but she put something special in order to make the readers feel comfortable. Mm. So I respect the translator's work uh, because we are like uh, twins. Uh, we think the same thing. We live the same, mm. the same uh, like uh, sorrows. And we try to make something great for the readers. Has it always been important to you since you wrote Letter to Jimmy that the book appear in English, James Baldwin's language? Yes, mm. that was that what I was. I've been expecting for like seven years. Mm. So 
I published the book in 2007, and now it's translated seven years later. It's okay. I think that uh, there's no rush. Mm. Uh, as a writer, we need to go step by step. I'm not uh, a type of writer who is like rushing in order to be well-known in the United States of America. It's going to take the time. It's going to take, if it takes 20 years, I'll go for that. If people are going to read me just after I'm uh, like already dead, it's okay too, you know. As long as the book is there, I did what I have to do to give tribute to James Baldwin. I... I'm feeling like I have already accomplished my mission. Now, you, of course, live in America now. How much of the idea that you had of America before coming to America was the product of James Baldwin and his thoughts about America? The idea before coming into America, as an African, I was thinking that uh, I'm going in the land in which my ancestors were like uh, uh, transported, were uh, deported. I'm going to the land in which I'm going to find black people who never lived in Africa mm. and with whom maybe I'm going to try to have a strong relationship. At the same time, I was thinking that I'm going in the land in which I'm going to meet other people, white, black, Asian, and so American, Native American, and so on and so on. Mm. So after all, I was thinking that I'm going to a land, to a country which is strong, mm. the number one in the world, but at the same time, a country... Uh, which is very weak because in United States of America, even though you are number one, but we have to correct here and there in order to make this land a better place to live. I always think of America as a country that, you know, is very anxious about its race relations and mm -hmm. will probably always be mm -hmm. anxious about that. Yeah. How, but I think of France that way, too. Yes. How, does, how, does France and, how do France and America compare in those terms their own anxiety about the races? Yes, uh, the United States, uh, America is very anxious about um, the racism issue. But at the same time, America don't, uh, never hide the question, you talk about that. If you are filling a form in order to get a job, you have to like mark your race. You have to mark maybe sometime, I don't know. Uh, people don't care if you, you, you say your sexuality. But in France, racism is not a topic uh, to be discussed in front of everybody. Everybody going to say, I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. But it's not written in the front of <laughs> someone that he's a racist. Mm -hmm. So the, a racist is like uh, discovered by the way mm -hmm. he is acting. So I can say that even if in the USA they have a 
to deal with the racism. At the same time, I can say that uh, the racism is an issue people can discuss everywhere on the media, on TV, on the meeting, which is not the case in France. Mm -hmm. In France, people gonna just say you are a racist because you don't like black people because you don't like arab because you are uh, a member of jean-marie le pen's par political party just like that they're gonna say but if you see things closely you can find racists in the Socialist Party or the Communist Party everywhere. Mm. Racist doesn't have a party. Racists are, a racist is everywhere. So that the difference between the United States where the racism is discussed, mm. written, and uh, maybe in France is not the case, just because the constitution of France said we are all equal, we don't care about the race, about the religion, and about your sex. That the principle. But in fact, every day you're gonna face a heck of racism in France. Mm. In these discussions in America, often instead of saying black, people will say African-American yes. as, as, as a sort of, there's a sense, I'm not sure what the origin is, but the sense is that that's, it's better to say African-American than black. I don't quite understand it myself because and somebody black in America, they may not have very much connection to Africa. Yes. I mean, yes. what are your feelings about that term, that it's so prevalent, African-American, to mm -hmm. describe American blacks? I think that um, people are scared of words. Mm. They think that by saying uh, African-American, it's going to be softer than saying uh, black or even Negro. I remember that in Africa, uh, we were called also Negroes by the colonizers. And what we did was to take that word Negro and to make it feel like it's a smart word, it's a cultural word, it's full of culture. Then African invented what they called in France, negritude, the way of being proud of his blackness. So we tried to take the bad word and to convert it in a good meaning. Mm. So I don't like uh, worry if people are saying African-American black, but we cannot say anymore Negro because it's linked, right. it's linked to a bad history. And uh, even Negro said, Negro said by black people, it can be okay. Mm. But think about a white man calling a black guy, hey, Negro, can you come here? It's going to be, it's going to be, he going to, the black guy going to sue <laughs> the white man. But, yes, that uh, may be the bad thing in this situation. A black man is allowed to call his brother Negro, but a white cannot call 
a black man, hey, Negro, come here, <laughs> because it's going to sound like an insult, mm. like a prejudice. Mm. The, the really funny thing is when Americans, they just in their mind start substituting African-American for black, yes. erects, and they call, you know, a, an English black man. They'll yeah. call him African-American. Yeah. You know, they'll just slip up. It's pretty hilarious, I think. But tell me, on the subject of the Congo, yes. the Congo you grew up in and the Congo today, yes. what, what's the difference? The Congo I grew up was a communist nation. One party, one ideology, and the president can remain president for decades. The first one I think we had uh, was president for like 12 or 15 years. The second one was uh, president for like nine years. He disappeared, he came back again, and uh, is uh, president right now. So it was a communist country with a kind of discipline. Uh, you have to be straight, you have to respect the party, you have to know your history, and so on and so on. Nowadays, it's more open and diverse. A Congolese man can like embrace another party. Mm. A Congolese man can vote, but we're still uh, facing a, polit a bad political situation mm. because of the fact that uh, everybody wants to be president. Mm. And when, when you have a president, people are going to say, no, we don't need that because he's from the north wow. of the country. We need a president from the south of the country. Yes. We are dealing with that situation called the tribalism. Mm. You are voted because you came from the north, because you come from the south, and so on and so on. Mm. So that's, we have to erase it. We are not uh, going to live or to be uh, connected just, we came, just because we came from the same village, mm. from the same tribe. Mm. Politics is something which is beyond the tribe. And that's what you have to explain to a lot of African nations. Mm. Do you go back often to the Congo? Yes, I go back each year. Mm. And it's important for me to go back because that allows me to uh, remain rooted to the Congo and to take another kind of inspiration in order to write. Mm. So I need to go back from time to time, like uh, an animal who uh, shy away from the bush mm. and who is coming back in order to drink in the river to be strong and to hit again the road. What do you What do you try to notice most when you're back in the Congo? What I try to notice most is. Um, I need to be surrounded by the people. I, I, I need to get lost in the market. I need to talk to a simple people, a farmer, a dealer, or to discuss with, uh, with teenagers, with old people. Uh, I need to know more my country, and I know that uh, if you want to know your country, you have, you have to go deeper. You have to talk to people. You have to uh, like observe the nature. And 
you need to smell that kind of perfume of your childhood which is disappearing the more you are getting old you are not feeling it anymore now your books are in at least 10 languages from mm -hmm. what i've understood do you ever feel the sense that you are that the you feel a burden to represent the parts of africa you know to the world it would be like pretentious to say that I'm representing that part of the world. But at the same time, uh, even if the thing I'm bringing in the table is small, but we need that small thing in order to make the world better than before. So when writing, I often think that I have to make my reader aware of my cultures, of my country. I want to make my reader think or realize that even if my country is very small, but we have a greater culture, we live very well, we try to like understand what is our place in the world. Do you think that James Baldwin has something to teach the Congolese as well? Yes, he have a, he, he has a, he had and he has a lot to teach the Congolese. He has to teach the Congolese uh, how to love their culture because at the end of the day, James Baldwin liked USA. He liked the United States of America, mm. and he said some word that. It's just because he likes this country that he is convinced that he has the right to criticize the country. Mm. So I would like to say to the Congolese people that you have to like your country. Even if you feel that the country is not the place to live, but you have to do your best in order to... Uh, arrange your country in order to make it become one of the best country in Africa or even one of the best country in the world. Mm. Do, do you notice your fellow Congolese don't like the Congo that much? They like the Congo, but you know, love is something very complicated. <laughs> you can uh, you can love someone, but you have to understand or realize that sometimes when you are loving someone, you can hurt him. Mm. And loving the Congo is not just to kicking out the president who is there. Mm. Loving the Congo is to help all those kids, mm. all those old people, to try to be responsible of the fate of your country. So I think that Congolese people's, people like the Congo, but at the same time, they, they, they don't realize that their love could hurt the country. Now, how much of a role in this does, does literature have, but literature that is different than Americans expect? I think Americans often expect any African novel to be sort of centered on sorrow about yeah. how bad Africa is. Yeah. So where, what role does literature not about that play? Literature about the parts of Africa that are not sorrow-related, you know? <laughs> I think that uh, 
As for me, from what I heard from my reader or from what I read uh, here and there about my work, uh, one thing is always said that uh, I like laughing a lot with, when I'm writing my novel. Mm. I don't want to picture Africa like a dark continent, the heart of darkness, mm. to recall the, uh, what uh, have been already said by J by Conrad. That I, I don't want to picture Africa like uh, the 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 heart of darkness. I want to make my reader feel like people are living the real life, mm -hmm. that they can laugh, that they can get in love, that they, they can get married, that uh, they can be like everyone in the world. It's pitiful to see this kind of literature always dealing with uh, the fact that uh, people are poor, uh, in, uh, we don't have like uh, this kind of uh, uh, houses or road and so on and so on. We need to find the other Africa, which is joyful, which, which can be a better place to stay. But I don't forget that Africa is suffering. Mm -hmm. We faced into, in 1994 the genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. We had the apartheid, uh, which ended uh, at the same year in 1994. And uh, we faced a lot in in Africa history, but we we need to overcome those kind of uh, sorrow, those kind of uh, situation in order to think another Africa a smarter and a very good place to live. Do you consider your novels to be comedies or comedic? Because, you know, African Psycho, for example, the premise of an inept serial killer is inherently comedic. Do you consider your novels to be comedic as, as whole works? I think that my novels are comedic, yes. Mm. Just also because uh, I understood uh, soon that in order to give a message to a people, you don't need to be serious. I read a fable from the French writer La Fontaine. He's like being comedic or teasing people, but at the same time, you can read beneath the message he's trying to spread. So I uh, am proud of like going in that road of comedic novel. And uh, at any case, if I read a writer like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I can say that it's also comedic. Mm -hmm. If I read the other uh, writer, even The Catcher in the Rye, you're going to say that it's very tough, it's very... Uh, but you're going to laugh about... Uh, the main character who is wandering here and there, who is trying to find his way. So it's maybe my taste. It's my way of writing. I cannot be someone who is sad every day. 
So if I'm sad on Monday, on Tuesday, I'm going to laugh a lot. And I'm going to pick Tuesday in order to write my novel because mm. I don't know how to write with the sorrow. Mm. I only know how to write when I'm laughing. Strategic writing according to your <laughs> moods. And what, what mood were you in writing Letter to Jimmy? I was in Michigan. The weather was very bad, which is the way to say that I'm just <laughs> I'm just being uh, very very uh, <laughs> soft. The world the 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 weather was very bad, and uh, I decided that I'm gonna read, and I was reading James Baldwin in uh, a great edition made by Tony Morrison in the National Library. He have collected uh, novel, collected po uh, uh, short stories and so on. So, so I was reading those, those books and finally I listened to a small voice mm -hmm. saying to me, write me a letter. And then I began to write that letter to Jimmy. I say, oh, I'm going to write a letter to James Baldwin to explain how I understood his message and how I would have been pleased to meet him, but it didn't happen. So this book was never a biography. It was never your narrative of your experience with James Baldwin's work. It was always a letter from day one. From day one, it was a letter in order to express my uh, feeling uh, about James Baldwin. And then by writing the, the letter, I felt that I have to explain to my reader who was James Baldwin, where he was born, who was his mother, the father, what he did, uh, the country he visited, and so on and so on. So the letter turn then like a kind of uh, biographical letter. It's become like a biography uh, by the way of a, a letter, which was the easiest way to uh, make the book become uh, more readable by everyone. I could have like written a scholar essay in which uh, each phrase I have a footnote uh, yes. quoting uh, uh, here and there, and it's going to be like 400 pages with 200 pages of uh, end notes. I didn't want that. That uh, makes people like uh, uh, being reluctant to go yeah. toward it's James Baldwin. But by reading a letter, you are like, reading my voice. I'm introducing you to James Baldwin. It's like an introduction to James Baldwin by the way of an African writer. Now, you've referred to James Baldwin as a mentor, mm -hmm. but that seems to me that it implies you can't have a mentor without having some disagreements with that mentor. Yes. Have, you, have you had these disagreements with Baldwin? <laughs> oh, disagreement, I think. Do I have disagreement? That's, that's a crazy thing. I never think about mm -hmm. that. <laughs> I think that so far, I don't have uh, this kind of conflict with James Baldwin. Mm. But maybe it's going to come with the times. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find out because he was so free, so independent, so outspoken that uh, I don't see any mistake. Right. He did. He may have some mistakes, 
Maybe I need to read uh, a lot Richard Wright, who was like uh, thinking that James Walden was uh, a great writer, but he disagreed about the way he was living. But I'm okay by the way she, he was living because that's the way he chosen to live. And you do write in letter to Jimmy about the conflict that erupted between Baldwin and Richard Wright. Yes. And you also reference another another black American writer, Ralph Ellison, yes. uh, in this book. Uh, but I want to know a little more about how, what is interesting to you, an African, about reading a black American who thinks about Africa. You know, the, the black Americans' reflections on Africa. What's interesting yes. about that? The interest is, is that um, as... An African, so I came from the Africa, I lived in Africa, I ate Africa, <laughs> I breathed Africa, so I dealt with Africa in reality. So I wanted to see uh, what African-Americans uh, African thinks, think about uh, Africa. Because the difference between me and an African-American is that the Africa I have in my mind is real. Mm. But in the mind of an African-American, the Africa is a dream, mm. is a myth. The African-American is thinking about uh, a, a kingdom, about uh, great values, about Africa, which is very free, but which is going to be disturbed by white people and by the slavery and so on and so on. So that's important to confront the reality with the dream. And I'm in the middle of that reality from Africa and the dream carried by African-Americans. What is it that this dream doesn't understand about Africa? But the dream is that uh, when an African-American is thinking about Africa, he's thinking to go back to the homeland, to the ancestors' land. But once he gets over there, he's going to realize that even American culture is in Africa. Mm -hmm. Africa is not anymore the place you're going to meet a lion, a panther, <laughs> or a monkey, or you're going to, uh, don't know, carry a snake at school and saying that he's my friend, I'm going to school with my snake, and I'm going to bring it back home. Yes. Africa is not anymore that, uh, that uh, heart of darkness. Mm. It's a real continent in which people are struggling in order to survive, people are trying to live. So once an American, an African-American realize that, then he's going to begin to help his brothers over there, or he's going to begin to understand more the real reality, if I can express myself like that, the real reality of Africa. Mm. Now, much of what Baldwin and writers like him had to write about had to do with the problems of, I guess we could say the problems of diversity, the problems of everybody getting along. Yes. And here in Los Angeles, it's the most, certainly the most diverse city of its size in yes. America, one of the most diverse in the world, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. 
being in Los Angeles, what, what perspective has that given you? What has it made you think about when you think about these issues, being in a place like this where so many peoples mm. converge? No, I think that this is the place to be for me. Because even when I'm teaching my French class, if uh, I see my, like my, in my 40 students come from everywhere, America, uh, Armenia, France, uh, uh, everywhere. So I needed to live in such a place in order to understand the other culture, mm -hmm. uh, to eat, Amer to eat uh, Asian food or Latin American food or uh, Italian food, to understand that the world is like the population in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. We are diverse. Mm -hmm. We need now to find another culture which is going to be compatible with our diversity. Mm -hmm. We don't need to push away people who don't look like us. We need to explain to them that we can take what is good from them, and we can take what is good from me and put it together and try to find another way to live. It's an experiment, Los Angeles. Then. It's a great experiment in Los Angeles, and I guess that uh, maybe New York, uh, New York can be in the same situation, but I think Los Angeles is up. I don't want to like to increase the war between West and uh, East, but I think that Los Angeles is more diverse. Mm. And uh, if someone has a, the, the like a statistic over there, I would be great to read it. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. But there was—I forget if it was in Letter to Jimmy or somewhere else—I saw you uh, read. You say this. You were listing off certain immortal figures, and among them was Tintin. Uh, beloved, yeah. A beloved character both in the Francophone world yes. and the Anglophone world. Yes. And I remember, well, first let me ask, is, is he a character you encountered when you were young as well? or? Yeah, the, the, you mean Tintin. The Tintin, which we call Tintin. Yes, <laughs> yes I met, I read Tintin because one of uh, the book is about Congo. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> and we didn't we didn't have that book in America until much later. They didn't translate it because it was you know a racist work. Yes. So we didn't get it. Till... Yes, that was a tough problem over there in Europe. They thought that Tintin in Congo, Tintin or Congo, was a racist book. But we have to remember when the Hergé, because Hergé was uh, the one who created Tintin. Mm -hmm. When Hergé created Tintin, he created in the context mm -hmm. of the Europe who was thinking that right. Africa was down, mm -hmm. that Europe was up. Mm -hmm. So he was just expressing what the Europeans was think were thinking at that time. Mm -hmm. Hergé had the same ideas than the people who were living in his era. Mm -hmm. So I would place Tintin or Congo in the context of that era, mm -hmm. and I would not judge that book with my eyes of nowadays, mm -hmm. because at the same time, I'm going to be like, uh, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, burning all the book written <laughs> in the 19th century or in the 17th century because I would find in those books a lot of racism, racist comments. So we need to keep 
Tintin au Congo, we need to keep that book in order to explain to our kid, black, white, yellow, or uh, whatever, to explain to them that this book was written in the beginning of the 20th century. At that time, Europeans were thinking that black people were like um, white, uh, uh, were down, and uh, we need to take the book like that, like a Peace, which gonna show that in Europe there were a lot of thinkers who said that Africans were not civilized, mm. and so on and so on. When you first saw that book, Tintin in the Congo, was it bothersome to you? Or was it a, were you thinking, oh, this is just nothing, nothing, and this is accurate, this is just some European's caricature of my country? Or what did you think? No, I, I was just laughing because <laughs> I was laughing. I heard it's a popular book in the Congo. Yeah, it, it's, it's a popular book in the Congo even now. Mm -hmm. I was laughing because for me, words, it was a laughable book. I didn't <laughs> find uh, what was the problem. Just uh, to remember... The person who saw uh, the book, or who saw the family of Hergé's uh, family, is a Congolese from DRC. Mm -hmm. He thought that he was hurt by the comments mm -hmm. in the book at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wrote uh, in, in the newspaper called in France Le Nouvel Observateur a response in which I said that I need that book in order to understand mm -hmm what were thinking the Europeans oh, at that time. Yes, if you correct it or you erase it, it's like you are erasing mm. the history. It's like you are erasing a piece which is going to help me to understand my own history, to understand the relation we had with the white people at that time. And I think it was only 10 years or so later that Arjé did Tintin in America, which is all gangsters and Indians, you know, right? So it's the same thing, you know, if you want to write about America, you're going to take just the prejudices you have about Africa. And, uh, you know, if you are hanging out, someone say that, oh, today is Halloween in France. People are going to try to act like American, but in order to act like American, you have to take the uh, sometimes the prejudice, just uh, American wear a hat, or I'm going to put a hat, mm -hmm. American wear the boots, I'm going to put the boots. Mm -hmm. But you will find American who, Americans who don't wear a hat, who don't wear the boots, and mm -hmm. so on and so on. Right, it's, it's <laughs> true. Now, on the subject of Baldwin, if, if James Baldwin appeared here, materialized here, what would you ask him? <laughs> I would ask him, like, how did you know that this going to happen? Mm -hmm. This meaning what we are facing nowadays. Yeah. How did you know that, like, uh, I don't know, 40 years before, how did you, did you know that? Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if mm. he would respond. <laughs> respond. He would maybe say that, uh, wait a minute, we are not done. Ah. So <laughs> the problem is we are not done. Mm. How to do in order to prevent mm. the catastrophe, uh, to prevent something bad to come to us? Would you want to talk to him in English or French? 
I think I'm going to talk to him in France mm. because I'm going to feel more comfortable. Mm. And by the time his friends, uh, <laughs> I think, would have increased, or would have like uh, uh, been very good. Yeah. It's, he, he spoke very, very a good French with a nice American accent. Ah. I would have. Uh, I, 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 you can find for the web his interview in France. It was very good at the time. And he would ask me to ask him questions in French. And finally, there's, I mentioned this homeless man who wishes, not, not necessarily wishes he was black, but he naturally feels like he is black yes. in the beginning and end of Letter to Jimmy. And he says he only reads Ralph Ellison. He just reads Invisible Man. But he does tell you to bring him one of James Baldwin's books. Did that ever happen? Did you ever bring him a book by James Baldwin? <laughs> yes, I do. And uh, the story is real, actually. Yes. So the the guy is still over there. You uh, often meet him close to a store on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard over there. I brought him a book from uh, uh, James Baldwin. Uh, I think it's... Uh, the, yes, I gave him the... Instead, I gave him the fire next time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he read that because I didn't see him from a while. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Baldwin's best-known essay, The Fire Next Time, in book-length form. Is that the book you'd recommend somebody start with if they haven't read any James Baldwin? Yes, as a non-fiction, I would recommend, uh, I would recommend uh, The Fire Next uh, Time. And as a novel, I would recommend... Uh, Giovanni's Room mm. because it's a book in which James Baldwin tried to be himself mm. by evoking a situation in which uh, he forgotten the blackness. Mm. No black character in it. It's not happening in Harlem. Mm. It's happening in Europe between Spain and France. The character are white, is mm. dealing with the uh, homosexuality, is dealing with the individual pain. It's maybe one of the most powerful books I've read this last like 30 years. Mm -hmm. I'm 30, uh, 48, 48. So just because it's at the same time poetic, is very sensitive as a book and it's written with the fear of not maybe uh, reaching the goal James Baldwin was trying to reach. He tried to explain to people if someone wants to be like that, leave him alone, he has the right to be like that. Mm. So I don't know if the, this message reached uh, the people, but we are trying to do ourselves in order to be, uh, in order to follow his uh, advices. Mm. I've been speaking here at the University of California, Los Angeles with Alain Mabanku. He's the author of many novels which are coming into the English language, have been over the past 10 years, like African Psycho, Broken Glass, The Memoirs of a Porcupine, Black Bazaar, more to come, I'm sure. But the newest book is nonfiction, of course. It's this letter to Jimmy on the 20th anniversary of your death. Alain, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me here.
This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARP at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.